John chapter 17, and we're beginning uh, the second of several sermons on the, the high priestly prayer of Christ. The title is, Jesus Prayed for the Disciples. And, you know, there's a couple of things that we started last week that I feel like we need to bring some closure to. One of those being, and the most important of those being, that statement of Jesus um, here in John 17, where he says in verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is going to be repeated for us, this idea of God giving Jesus people. And Jesus then saving those that God gives him. It's going to be repeated throughout his prayer. You can't run from it. I mean, he says it in verse 6. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. And you gave them to me. And they've kept your word. Then we... See it again in verse 9. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Verse 10. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, you have given me, that they be one, even as we are one. It's repeated over and over and over again in this prayer that God the Father gave to the Son specific, particular people that the Son then saves, brings to the Father. And that's a repulsive idea to some, and I know it may be a struggle for you. Uh, Many a sermon preached on John 17, John 6, John 10, uh, Ephesians 1, Romans 8, Romans 9, Romans 10... Uh, If we just want to go through the list, it's hundreds of passages that as we preach it, and as we teach it at most churches, we just skim past it. Because it's not popular. It's not popular. But I want to bring uh, some closure, a little bit of closure. Maybe this will help. The love of God is on display in redemption. The love of God is on display for us to see in redemption. God is love, John tells us in 1 John. God is love. But you and I wouldn't know love unless He put it on display for us. We, we couldn't see it unless He acted on the love. And the action He takes is redemption, is saving sinners. That's the action He does. He gives Himself. To save sinners. He doesn't just say, I love you, like some Hallmark card. He says, I love you. Now let me show you that I love you. And then he came in the flesh. And he humbled himself. And he served. And he gave his life a ransom for many. He loved sinners, like you and like me. And he called us to himself. And so he put his love on display in redemption. Now, three points about that, quickly. God promised to save the elect before the world began. 
God made a promise to save the elect before the world began. And I'm going I'm to preach an expositional sermon. Don't worry. But the introduction's a little topical. So I need you to hold John 17 and go to Titus chapter 1. Because it's crucial that we understand this. It's, some people say, well, just skip it. Just go over it. People don't like it. Oh, but if you understood it, if I understood it, the more we understand it, the more we like it. The problem is we don't understand it very well. And we don't spend enough time thinking about it. Titus chapter 1. Paul says that God made a promise to save the elect. Look what he says in Titus chapter 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's chosen, God's elect, And their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life. Here's what I was saying. Which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Did you follow that? God promised eternal life through Jesus Christ to the elect before the world began. And that's what's caught up in this high priestly prayer of Jesus. Jesus is saying, God, Father, you promised to give these ones to me. And you have given them to me. And I have saved them. That's the basis of his prayer for the elect. You gave them to me. You promised you would give them to me. And you have given them to me. And I am saving them. I have saved them. It's based on a promise. Salvation is based on a promise. A promise is only as good as the character of the one who makes the promise. And his character is good because we know from Numbers chapter 23, God cannot lie because he's not a son of man. So Paul quotes that here saying, God, who never lies, promised your salvation to you through Christ before the world began. Before time Eternal. That's the phrase. Now, that leads me to this question. Then who in the world is God promising before the world began? Who's He making the promise to? He can't be making it to you. Because you didn't exist before the world began. He can't be making it to Abraham. He can't be making it to Israel. He can't be making it to the church. He can't be making it to the angels. He can't be making it to any creature. Who's He making the promise to? Himself. That's what I'm saying. We don't get it. We don't understand it. We run from the idea of God choosing to save the elect. And we repulse at that thought because we think it's not fair because our, our mind's all messed up. It's fallen with sin. It's eternally fair. It's eternally just. Because God made a promise based on His character to Himself to save the elect. And He will keep it. He will keep that word. Hold, hold your place. Because I can tell some of you are saying, I don't know if I believe you. Okay? Don't believe me. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. Believe the Word of God. 
Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike the fathers and the mothers and the murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whoever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The gospel, the good news of the blessed God. This is the good news of God. The salvation of God. It's not our salvation. It's God's salvation. It's God's gift that He promised to Himself. Ephesians chapter 1. We look over in Ephesians and we're just running through these quickly. There's hundreds of texts. Literally, we could go to to talk about this. But I'm just going to talk about a couple. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. Even as He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, before time began, in eternity before time, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. God promised Himself. And then God chose the redeemed. God's plan for salvation is resting on the unshakable promise He made to Christ before the world began. He saves us because Christ is inherently, inherent in Himself. He is desirable. He did not save us because we are desirable. He saved us because God is desirable. Because Christ is desirable. Isn't that a relief to you? I mean, it should be. Here's what I'm saying we don't get. We want our salvation to be about us. Okay, let's go down that road. We wave the magic wand. Your salvation's about you. You leave this room. And in your mind, you curse the guy out at the intersection who breaks the law. I do it all the time, unfortunately. Driving's a bad thing for, for fallen people. You know? Because I know how to drive and everybody else doesn't. Just, just dri- drivers 101. I, I just got to say this publicly. If we meet and there's a median and there's a way to cross over the median, please go to the right. Always go to the right. It'll all be written in the Bible. Go to the right, go to the right, go to the right. I, I, I mean, I, I, I try my best to get all the... I, Amy fusses at me because people will leave just enough room for my car to get one wheel in the grass and one wheel in the median, and I do it. And then they're cussing me out because I went to the right. Go to the right. Okay. I feel better now. And if my salvation was based on me, I would have just lost it. Because I'm not good enough. I lose my temper. I think lustful thoughts. I fail every day. And if the promise is about me being perfect, I'm out. But thank God the promise is about the perfect one who never fails. He never fails. 
And when I fail, his blood stands in my account so that I'm free from sin and part of the family of God. We run from the things sometimes that are the sweetest. The enemy desires you never to understand that your salvation is about God loving himself and about God giving a gift to himself. He always wants you to think it's about you. That way he can keep you working hard all your life and keep you blinded and headed for hell. He doesn't want you to ever fall at the feet of grace and cry out, save me a sinner. He never wants it. So he deceives you. And your flesh deceives you. Don't believe it. It's a lie. You can't save yourself. And you don't have to. He has saved you through Christ. He made a promise to himself, which he will keep because of who he is. And his promise was to himself based on his character, not mine. And so it can never fail. And then that's why they asked Paul, well then Paul, what will happen? They'll go sin. Paul says, certainly they won't. Once they know who their father is, they'll want to be just like him. That's the relationship that he offers through Christ. And that's what keeps us from sin. What keeps us from sin is not legalism. What keeps us from sin is a great father who we want to emulate and be like. Now, just to wrap this little part up, this introduction part, and then we'll get into the text so uh, we can see a little clearer. John chapter 6 Jesus makes a phenomenal statement about what we've been just talking about. What I've been trying to encourage you with. It's a, it's a, it, it, it is as clear as a whistle. Verse 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you, that you have seen me and you have not believed. He's speaking to the Pharisees, to the Jews. Then he says, follow closely. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will by no means turn them away. Cast them out. For I've come down from heaven... Not to do my will, but the will of Him who sent me. What is the will of Him who sent you, Jesus? To keep the promise that He made before time began. That's His will. And so He's calling men to Jesus, and Jesus isn't casting them out because of the promise that was made. And then look what He says. For I... And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me. Why? Because if He loses one, then the promise isn't good and God's a liar. So He says, I'm not going to lose anybody who He sent me for, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. The assurance of our salvation is wrapped up in the ability of the God that we serve. And He is a good God And he never fails. He keeps his word. He is not a liar. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. You say, well, if you teach that election stuff, people are not going to know they need to believe in Jesus. 
Hogwash. That's the only way they'll know they need to believe in Jesus. Anything short of teaching the truth of the gospel, which is that God made a promise to Himself, Jesus Christ, to save those whom He would redeem before time began, and then sent His Son on that mission to fulfill His promise. Anything short of teaching that teaches you to work real hard so God will love you. And you'll never do that, and you'll never feel that God loves you, and so you'll never be good enough, and you will live a life of drudgery, slavery, legalism, frustration, bitterness, and you will leave the church. People leave the church constantly over this misunderstanding. And I don't want that for you. I don't want that for your children. God, God is a promise keeper. And he has a beautiful promise. And we're seeing a picture of it here in John 17. But let, me, let me say it this way. Now we're in John 17. Let me say it this way. Think with me about this analogy. It's an analogy. It's, a, it's, it's an earthly analogy. Okay, Don't go too far with it. But just think about it here. What I'm saying. What our salvation is. What is it? One of the most beautiful sights in all the world is when I get to stand on a place like this with a young buck of a dude right here. He's got the world by the tail. You know? And those back doors open. And standing in those back doors is a beautiful bride. All brides are beautiful. All of them are. She has on the pure white. She has the veil across the face. And she stands arm in arm with her father. It doesn't get any better than that. And then that father begins to come forward. And he's beaming with pride over his bride. And he comes down and and all the friends are gathered. Like angels. Watching, witnessing this beautiful thing. The consummation of the age is happening. That bride's coming forward and that groom stands and turns next to that father. Some of you have done it already for your, for your uh, daughters. And then the pastor asked, who gives this woman to be married to this man? To which the dad hopefully says, her mother and I. He lifts the veil. He gives the kiss. He joins the two. And he goes and sits and watches and beams with pride, glory, honor. Okay? Aside to the message, because it's such an important practical point that I think we can get here, guys. Young dads like me that we've got children coming up. When that dad says, her mother and I, he is speaking a blessing over the union. He's saying, I have chosen a bride for my son that is good, acceptable, honorable. If he's not saying that, then he ought not ever get in the back of the church with her. Little girls, little guys, 
You do not want to marry unless you have the full, absolute blessing of that young lady's mom and dad. You are not taking their daughter as a thief. You are receiving a gift beyond price. Young men, don't ever steal a man's daughter. Let him bless it. Young lady, you should never even be in a relationship with a man that your daddy doesn't choose for you. It will end in disaster. It will end in disaster. The picture is the bride of Christ. God chose the perfect bride for His Son. And He walked her. He gave her to His Son. And He joined the two together that they should be one. Christ and His church. And now He beams with glory and honor because of the relationship that He has christened that He has promised, that He is united. It's beautiful stuff. It's jaw-dropping. It's amazing. You never get over it when you see it that way. You don't ever get over grace. And Christ took His bride, and now He's in the high priestly prayer, and He's praying for His bride. He's praying for His bride. When's the last time, men, that you prayed for your bride? I mean, this is practical stuff, isn't it? It's not just high and holy. It's high and holy, and it's right here where we are. Some of you wheels are turning. I, I didn't do that when I gave my daughter away. Some of you are thinking, I want to do that when I give my daughter away. That's what the Bible does to you. It, it gets all kinds of messy and practical right where you live. With good theology. The bride is given to the groom. And now the groom is praying for the bride. And here's what he prays. I have manifested your name to the people. I have made your name known. He says, I've I've declared your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. And you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you've given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. And I stop there because that's all we'll have time to cover. And then he continues to pray. Jesus, first of all, prays for those who believe in him. He's not praying for everyone. He's praying for those who believe in him. Specifically, he's praying for the 11 disciples. And then us who would believe in there. From their testimony. I used to think there was this hard break in verse 20. In your text, if you look at it, I do not ask for these only, but for those also who will believe in me through their word. I used to think that was like a hard transition. In other words, he's praying for the disciples, 
stopped praying for the disciples. Now he's praying for us. But it's not that way. He's not just, what he's saying in verse 20 is, I'm not just praying for the 11 up here. I'm praying also for those who will believe. And down here, I'm not just praying for those who will believe, but I'm also praying for the 12 or the 11. You see, it's not a hard division. When you study it out, it's more like a transition, a smooth transition. He's praying for the disciples, and when he prays for them, some of the prayer is only for them, and some of the prayer is for all of us. Okay, and we're going to talk about the difference in, in what's for them and what's for us. But let's look at this. Jesus prays for those who believe in him. They believe in the character of God. These people believe in the character of God. Verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people. Manifested your name. So Jesus walked around saying, Jehovah. Jehovah. Hey Jesus, Jehovah. He made their name, made your name known. Jehovah, right? Well, no, that'd be silly, wouldn't it? He wouldn't need to keep repeating God's name over and over. What does it mean that he made the name known? Well, it means he made the character of God known to the people. When a name is given in the Bible, the name is given and it matches the character of the one who has the name. Example, in Genesis, Jacob is born, right? Jacob and Esau, the twins in the womb. The Esau sticks his heel out and they tie the red ribbon and then Jacob yanks on his hair. He had a lot of hair. And he yanked it back up in the womb and he passed him. And was born first. And when he came out, he didn't have the red ribbon. And his daddy said, his, his name is Jacob. Right? Because what does Jacob mean? Usurper. The one who seeks to replace another. It also means a liar. I'm not talking about you, Jacob, in here. Where are you at? You got better character than that, son. But a name meant something, didn't it? And that name meant he had usurped. He had taken the place of his brother. That's how he got the name Jacob. That's why God changed his name to Israel. Prince. After he had come through a transformation with Christ. Because he was a liar, wasn't he? He met his character. We go through the Old Testament, all the names are given like that. Someone is born and their mother dies, they get a bad name. Someone is born in the good, prosperous times, they get a good name. A name meant who the person was. It was a, it was a form of blessing the, the child or cursing the child, whichever way it went. And so when Jesus says, I manifested, I made your name known. He's not talking about Jehovah, the name. He's talking about the character of who God is. And he did that not just in teaching, but in living. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is full of glory and truth. Everything he did made the character of God known to the people that God had sent him to save. They believe in your name. So they don't just believe something about God, some nebulous thing out here, but they believe about the character of the holy God of heaven. That's what they believe in. They not only believe in His character, but they believe in God's Word. Verse 6. We're looking at verse 6 here. In, in the third part of the verse, He says, 
You gave them to me and they have kept your word. Then we look over in verse 8. For I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. They have believed your word. One of the characteristics of a believer is that they believe in the character of God. They don't always understand what God's doing, but they know the God they serve. And they love His Word. They love His Word. Jesus said, you gave these to me, and they love not only your character, but they love your Word. It's not any good to say that you love God but then you're continually questioning His character. You're attacking His character. Questioning His goodness. That's not a good place to be. Because those who believe in God trust His character. Believe in Him. And not only do they believe in His character, but they believe in His Word. They love His Word. When someone expresses to me that they can't really... They don't really get anything out of the Bible. I don't really like the Bible. That's a sad state to be in. That's a, that's a worrisome thing to me. Because Jesus said that the believers loved your word. The word, they knew that the word one came from you. You met those people who claim Christ and yet they don't know where the, they don't believe where the Bible came from. They don't believe it to be God's Word. It's just a book. Jesus says, the believers know your Word comes from you. I've given you, given them your Word, and they believe in your Word, and they know now that it came from you. Because everything I have comes from you. They believe in the character of God. They believe in the Word of God. And that belief is expressed in obedience. It's expressed in obedience. Look what, it, uh, look what it says in verse 9 and 10. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Glorified in them. They believed that you sent me, and I'm glorified in them. How can he be glorified in them? Because they obey the word of God. Believers, characteristics of believers is they love the character of God, they love the Word of God, and they obey the Word of God. So Jesus prays for those who believe in verses 6 through 9. God is sovereign in His choice of this bride, and yet the bride is responsible. I don't want to leave without this first point. We have one other point, but I don't want to leave this first point without making something clear because I've emphasized the sovereignty of God and it's right to do so. Look at verse 6. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. And you gave them to me, the sovereignty of God. Yours they were and you gave them to me. But then, what does he say? And they have kept my word. See, one of the fears we have about the sovereignty of God is that then we're, ir- we're not responsible. Well, if you believe that God does it all, then that lets everybody off the hook. They don't have to do anything. Well, Jesus doesn't believe that. 
Jesus said, you gave them to me, and they, they keep your word. They're obedient to your word. May I just be clear here? We here at Grace Fellowship believe 100% that God is sovereign in salvation. Sovereign. He elected, He chose, He made a promise before the world began. And yet we believe in 100% human responsibility. We believe in both. You say, well, you, you got to choose. No, the Bible doesn't choose. The Bible presents them both. So it is nonsensical for a person to say, I'm not believing in Jesus. Well, why aren't you believing in Jesus? Because he didn't elect me. I'm not one of his elect. Well, then believe. No, he didn't choose me. How do you know? Believe. Sovereignty doesn't let us off the hook. So, well, if you believe in the sovereign God, why do you preach for people to believe? Because they have to believe. You say, well, that's circular reasoning. I know. The Bible uses it all the time. We all use it all the time. What I'm trying to tell you is, it's not an either or. It's both and. God chose the elect. And the elect will come. The elect will believe. The elect will obey His word. It's both. It's not either or. It's both and. So when I go to my lost neighbor, do I go talking about election? No. I go talking about their need for a Savior. And begging them, imploring them to believe in the Savior. I don't worry about whether they're elect or not. That will be proven in time. That will be proven in time. So Christian... That means we are responsible to be His ambassadors. Yeah, well, God will save who He wants to save. Yes, He will. And He will do it the way He chose to do it. Through you, through me, through witness, gospel witness. That's how He will save them. Or they won't be saved. We are responsible. There's no one in hell tonight, today. There's no one in hell who wants to be with Christ. Not one. There's no one in hell who came to Christ and was turned away. Because Christ would never turn away the gift of His Father. There's no one. If someone is in hell today, they are in hell because they do not love Christ. They do not love His character. They do not love His Word. And they refuse to obey. That's why they're there. Matter of fact, if you and I could transport ourselves there and we said, follow us. There's a land that you haven't seen yet, but it's beautiful. And we describe to them the beauty of it. They would say, I'm in. Where's it at? I'm in torment. It's just over there. The only thing is to enter through that gate. You must believe in Jesus. I'm out. Every one of them. I'm out. I thought you wanted heaven. Oh, I do, but I don't want him. Is that your opinion or the Bible's opinion? Luke 15 is the absolute proof text for that truth right there. Luke 15 says, 
that the rich man died and Lazarus died on the same day. And the Lazarus, the poor beggar, outside the gates of the rich man, who had been in torment his whole life, was gathered up to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man, who had lived in the lap of luxury but rejected Christ, died and went to hell. And the gulf between them was there. And Lazarus is with Abraham, and the rich man looks up and sees them from the pit of hell. And he says... Father Abraham, send Lazarus with one drop to relieve my torment. One drop of water to relieve my torment. And Abraham says, it can't be done. The gulf between us is fixed so that you cannot pass to us and we cannot pass to you. Second request. You remember it? Then send someone back. Send him back. To warn my brothers not to come to this place. And Abraham said they have the law and the prophets. If they won't believe that, they won't even believe a dead man who comes back to tell them. Where was the third question? Abraham, give me Christ. I see my failure. I should have believed. I believe. Give me Jesus. It's not there. Why? Because though he suffer a trillion years, an eternity, he will never accept Christ. Why is he in hell? Because he chose to be in hell. There's no one shut out of heaven who desires to be with Christ. So if you're here today and you say, my desire is for Christ, then believe in Him and be saved. Don't use God's sovereignty as a crutch to stay in unbelief. Come to Jesus. Buy the bread without price. Take the water that quenches the soul. Take Christ to yourself today. Believe in Jesus and you will be saved. I say it with full and absolute confidence. If you believe in Him, you will be saved. Jesus saves all of those who believe in Him. And Jesus prays for those who believe in Him because He loves them. Believers in verse 10 are said to belong to God. All mine are yours. Everyone that Jesus has belongs to the Father. He prays for them because they belong to Him. They not only belong to God the Father, but they belong to Him. Verse 10, again, and yours are mine. He prays for them because He loves them, because they're the Father's, because they're His, and because they are glory to Christ. They are glory to Jesus Christ. And I'm glorified in them. So He prays for them. He loves us. Verse 11, and I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, that they may be one as we are one. It leads into our next sermon on this text. But let me just close by saying, what does he mean that he's giving them back? He's entrusting them back. I struggled with that, uh, especially with the analogy of the marriage. Because I thought, well, once the two become one, then they never go back to their parents. 
But then as I prayed and thought through this text, it does make sense. Think of it as this. I married Amy and was called off to war. I would entrust Amy to her family. I can't keep her now. I've got to go fight the war. I don't want anything to happen to her. I love her. Take care of her. Stand in my way, in my place. Hold her. Comfort her. Provide for her while I fight. When I return, I'll take her again unto myself. Jesus was praying specifically for the eleven. God had given them to him. And now he's headed to the cross. The one moment at which Satan could pounce on their faith and destroy them. And he said, I'm trusting them to you, Father, because no one is strong enough to pull them from your hand. He's off to fight the war. He needs provision for his loved ones. He makes provision. As he headed to the cross, he loved us. I mean, think of it. He's not thinking about himself. He's not thinking about his suffering. He's not thinking about his trial. He's saying, everyone you've given me is so precious to me. I don't want to lose any of them as I fight this war on the cross. We have a wily enemy. He will strike now to scatter them. Father, I'm giving them to you. Hold them tight. And when I win this war, I'll take them to myself. It's a beautiful prayer. And I want you to leave encouraged that He made the promise, He has kept the promise, and He doesn't do it out of duty. He does it because He loves us. Let's pray. Father, as we dismiss this morning.